I want to say once again, thank you all so much for coming. So we have a little bit of an ambitious, we have a little bit of an ambitious uh, goal tonight. And I want to give the full range or the full spectrum, at least to whet your appetites on the full spectrum of what we talk about when we talk about religious anti-Zionism. And I think my reason for wanting to talk about this from a Zionist perspective, a religious Zionist, I am indeed a religious Zionist. Uh, I identify as such and I educate as such. Why is it so important to talk about religious anti-Zionism? And as I mentioned in one of the earlier installments, I'm not really, I'll stop sharing for this introductory part. I'm not really so interested uh, in secular anti-Zionism. I think we, all we need to do is open up a newspaper or look out on the street and um, social media. And you see what, what, what the state of anti-Zionism is nowadays, and it's everywhere. And Zionism certainly feels like a dirty word itself. Uh, I think it's a slur to refer to Jewish people now as Zios. I think it's like a, a specifically British kind of thing. But what I, the reason I want to focus, I have no truck with that. I mean, there's not really much from a religious perspective for me to want to talk about or to engage with. What I am very fascinated by and very interested in, and, and hopefully you should be as well, is what about our co-religionists? What about people who care just as much about Torah, who care just as much about Hashem, who care just as much, uh, believe it or not, about the Jewish people as we do? And don't share our views and don't share our religious sense of the importance of the state of Israel and of Zionism. How do we relate to that? And how do we understand where they're coming from? I remember when I was quite young and I was in a Hezder Yeshiva for the first time and I would encounter people like this. You know, you would rage at them and you would say, I don't, I don't understand, you know, the invariably ultra-Orthodox kind of people. You would say a term itself, which is meaningless. And you'd say, how could it be that they don't see? Can't you see that this is God acting in history? Can't you see the miracles? Can't you see 1967 and 1948? What are you asleep? How could you deny God's presence in the world? And, and it leads to a kind of anger. Why don't you share the same Zionist point of view? Haven't you read Tanakh? Haven't you read the books of the Torah? Don't you understand that Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, is where everything is heading towards? And it leads to this sense of, it's almost a dissociative sense. How can, how can these people call themselves Jews? How can they call themselves religious Jews and not be Zionists and not care about the state of Israel the way that I do? I'm proud to say that I think that I've gone through an evolution where that rage and that inability to understand and that inability to relate at all, I'm just going to pin my video for a moment for everybody, that inability to understand, I think, has given way to a desire to understand. And I think it's a really important thing whenever we hold views, especially religious views, to try and figure out what might be the holes in this? What might be the challenges that a full and truthful appreciation and taking stock of our points of views must undergo? Meaning when I call myself religious Zionist, have I really considered the potential issues with that? Have I really considered why others don't feel the same way? So what I want to do tonight is, is give a rather serious um, and sober accounting for the, the range of Jewish Orthodox religious responses, some non-Orthodox religious responses to Zionism that don't track with what we're familiar with 
from the religious Zionist perspective. And I think that by understanding that better and not being afraid of opposing points of view on this particularly fraught and and serious and emotional issue, I think that our own religious Zionism is deepened, is made more profound. And then we're going to come full circle and round out our shiurim with the range of religious responses nowadays, what religious Zionism might look like nowadays. So it's, it's, it's a tall order, um, but I'm really happy that you're here to join me for this process. So we finished off last week with a, a very seminal piece of Gemara from Sechus Ksubo's staff, Kofiud Aleph, Amid Aleph, and it talks about the three oaths. And the three oaths, we started with a story, and um, we could talk about, maybe that might be our next series. I love talking about um, how the Talmud, how the, how the Gemara uses stories, whether it's using stories for story's sake, or it's using stories uh, to talk about law. And this story about halacha starts out with, this piece of halacha starts out with the story of Rabbi Zeirah, Rabbi Zeirah was avoiding Rabbi Yehuda, because he wanted to make Aliyah, and he knew that his Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda, was opposed to the matter. And, and the end of the sugya that we talked about last week introduced the concept of the three oaths. Now, the three oaths, just to review very quickly, the first is that the Jewish people are forsworn, that we have an oath not to ascend to the land of Israel in Mas as a, as, as, as a wall, that individual Aliyot, individuals deciding to take upon themselves a journey to the land of Israel to maybe settle there, that's okay, and that has happened throughout history, but we can't ascend as a people, as groups. And the second is that we're not allowed to rebel against the nations of the world. God has put history in such a way that we had temple, we had two temples, they were destroyed because of our sins. Because of our sins, we've been exiled from our land. And because of our sins, we wait to return only for the Messiah to be the one who redeems us and brings us back to the land of Israel. And then the third, which in the eyes of some abrogates the first two oaths, is that that the nations of the world should not oppress us too much. Now, I mentioned last week in relation to my, my safta of blessed memory, uh, that who was a staunch Zionist who was in the Israeli Air Force. Uh, just um, for those that didn't see last week, let's see if I could get her picture up here. Uh, this was my Safta, Israeli Air Force uh, member at a young age and a Holocaust survivor. I think people like my Safta and many survivors, my Saba Zechron Levrach as well, would, would look at the third oath and say, really, the nations of the world haven't oppressed us too much? That would abrogate the, the, far, the, the, the foregoing two oaths as well. But... These three oaths, as I said last week, are really the, the, the baseline. It's not the ceiling of religious anti-Zionism, because it's certainly more than a halachic issue. It's, it's, not, it's not that this is the end-all, be-all of the conversation. There's much bigger and broader theological approaches in place as well. So one individual who's very sensitive to a stream of religious anti-Zionism, of opposition to Zionism, and what we would term a passive approach to the advent of the Messiah, a passive approach to Jewish history, where religious Jews are meant, all Jews, are meant to sit tight. That history, the Jewish history is, try not to get massacred, try not to suffer too much, stay in the ghetto, and hopefully we will make it, and we will we'll be able to have kids, and we'll make it to the end of history, where miraculously God will send the Messiah and, and redeem us and bring us back to the land of Israel, al kanfein Sharim, on the wings of Ingalls. You know, I can't help but say parenthetically, right, uh, when I mention that, that particular vision, 
that God is somehow going to miraculously redeem us and bring us all back, uh, and that it's going to be al kanfein on the wings of eagles, as the Navi tells us, you know, that when uh, there was the Operation Solomon airlift, uh, one of the major airlifts of the Yemenite Jews, who you, talk to, you want to understand Zionism, and you talk to a Yemenite Jew, talk to an Ethiopian Jew maybe, right, to people that, uh, people that walked, people that walked to the land of Israel. And, and you talk to them, and then when they were put on those planes, right, and you ask them what they felt, they said that this was the mimush, that this was the materialization of the prophecy, that we were, that those jets, that those C-130 transports were nothing short of the much hoped for and prophetic confession. Who said we're talking about eagles of feathers? We're talking about eagles of aluminum airframes. That's what we were talking about. So you see that even on this particular note, what does the eagle look like that's going to signal the messianic age and the ingathering of the exiles? You could look at it in a natural way, a military transport plane, or you could hope for, you know, whatever might be literal eagles that, that bring people in the age of, of miracles. I see that there is... A, Oh my gosh, I forgot to record. Thank you, Judith. I'm so sorry. Record on the cloud. Okay. Uh, for the recording, we had like a hundred something listens on uh, SoundCloud. So for the recording, I don't know. I'm sorry about the first uh, 10 minutes of this. I apologize, everybody. Uh, but I'm uh, doing, uh, let's continue. So so that's that's an important thing. That's the past approach. Where Cook was very aware of it. As I mentioned last week, I'll just give you a quick peek at my wall. So the middle picture on my wall over there. Is Rav Kook. Is Rav Kook. Now, who is Rav Kook? Rav Kook, I like to say, is my Rebbe. Rav Kook, um, Rav Kook was the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of the land of Israel. He was born in 1865 in Greve, Lithuania. He was known as genius. He studied in the Velazhin Yeshiva, and he was a prize student of the Nitziv, who was the Rosh Yeshiva of Naftali Tzvi, who the Berliner. Rav Kook was a major, major genius, a uh, Talmudic prodigy, uh, somebody that thought very deeply about the place of Jews and modernity. Um, I'm reading a great book by the uh, amazing professor Yehuda Mirsky of Brandeis University. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on Rav Kook. If I could recommend one book on Rav Kook in the Yale Jewish Live series. Is everybody familiar with the Yale Jewish Live series? If you are, if, uh, uh, for those that have their cameras on, uh, I see some nodding. So if you are familiar, so they have uh, stuff about Harry Houdini, Emma Lazarus, uh, 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 Zev Jabotinsky, that was a good one. And Menachem Begin, there's one on Rav Cook as well that was written by Dr. Mirsky. Um, Rav Cook, the title of his uh, doctoral dissertation, now a book, is um, it talks about the, re- the religious meaning of modernity and how religiosity clashes with modernity and especially with political movements like Zionism. Rav Kook uh, became the ideological founder, the ideological forebearer of what we term now to be religious Zionism. Rav Kook was somebody that I like to imagine to myself constantly standing uh, between two opposing forces, the forces of tradition and the forces of modernity, and trying with all of his might and with every act of his life to try and bring those things together. He was a fiery and passionate speaker, as you could see in this image. And then he was also a deep, profound, and, um, and somewhat tortured thinker at times, as you could see in this picture. And Rav Kook was uh, not a card-carrying Mizrahi member, we talked about Mizrahi last week. Rav Cook, in fact, leveled a tremendous amount of bikoret, of criticism on Mizrahi. And Rav Cook was constantly aware of the tension, the pull. Now, just to round out his biography, 
Rav Kook eventually made it. After a rabbinic posting in the town of Boisk, Rav Kook made it to the land of Israel. He accepted a post as the rabbi of Jaffa. We have reports of Rav Kook writing in his journals and his notebooks looking out onto the sea in Jaffa. Um, pretty cool town nowadays. If you've been there, it's very hip. Um, I've, uh, I was able to be there a few years ago. Amazing uh, coffee houses looking out onto the Mediterranean Sea. And Rav Kook eventually made it to become the chief rabbi. Uh, it was not yet the state. Rav Kook died in 1935. And Rav Kook along the way developed to a point where he became the main ideological forebear of what we term religious Zionism nowadays. So nobody comes close to the extended articulation and presentation of how it is possible to bridge the gap between religion and Zionism, quite like Rav Kook. However, Rav Kook's point of view on this was highly nuanced, and it was one that that had criticism for all sides. Look at what he says in an essay. Rav Kook wrote uh, copiously in the journal Culture of the Time, and this was published in the Hadavir Journal. And we're going to read the English just for the sake of time because we have a tall order of what we want to cover tonight. Rav Kook says, in order to assuage the fears of Torah greats and those who fear the word of God, Haredim, that the Zionist movement will cause ruptures in the faith of our holy Torah. People were afraid that if Jews went along with Zionism, that would be the end of, of Shlome Amune Yisrael, of, of staunch, steadfast adherence to the Torah's laws and to tradition. And that Zionism was just another, another byword for reform and the ultimate abrogation of the Torah. Beyond that, to remove the complaints of free-thinking writers, amongst whom there is a consensus agreeing with the reformers regarding our national revival. Cook says, it's true. Plenty of Zionists, especially at the early stages, really believed that Zionism was going to supplant traditional Judaism, that we would return back to the land of Israel and we would see what the new Jew looked like. And even physically, there's a lot of discourse about this. There is the hunched over, crooked, and, and, and pale sickly Jew of the diaspora, that, ar- that archetype. And then there's the other image of the strong Sabra, even in the way the shoes are. There's a, all this discourse, we'll spare you it. But even the way the shoes, the shoes of the ghetto, which are, you know, these, uh, these slickers and long leather shoes and the sandal, which sim- symbolizes a connection to Adama, to land, to earthiness, to being tanned and to fighting and taking up arms and backhoes and draining the swamps. Rav Cook says, I know that there are plenty Zionist thinkers that actually say, yeah, guilty as charged. We don't want to have anything to do with traditional Judaism. This is a new Judaism. Rav Kook says, I found it necessary to explain in short, according to the law and the halacha, how we should conduct ourselves in the ways of the Torah at this time of national revival and return to the land. Even if, and this is such an important line over here, even if the redemption should happen by natural means. Remember when we talked about the approach that says to wait, to be passive, that we are forsworn by these three oaths to sit tight in history and to bear whatever comes? Rav Kook and Deime and religious Zionists believe that it happens through natural means. Natural means means that redemption is something that we can materialize and see with our own eyes through our own actions and our own activity Natural means, whether that is planting forests for Karen Kayem at Israel, whether that is starting a kibbutz and, and, and farming the land, whether it is establishing a national bank and an army and roads, 
All of this is part of what it means to bring about redemption through natural means, even if it is in an initially degraded way. Even if at the beginning, the people who are responsible primarily for all of that natural work are people who don't keep Shabbos, are people who don't keep kashos, are people who don't want to have anything to do with tradition, in fact, are, are, are completely diametrically opposed from it. Those who desire reform think that it is permissible and fitting to abrogate many halachot and minagim as we become an active nation. An active nation doesn't need that kind of stuff. We don't need Talmud Torah. We don't need the tradition. It satisfied a purpose when we were in the ghettos, but it is, it is antiquated and it is anachronistic. Now, we don't need it. And it's from the demand of those hearts loyal to God's words that tremble and see fit to oppose Zionism in all its forms. Ruf Cook, as you could see, is quite sensitive to both sides. Rav Kook is quite sensitive to how the other side, the Haredi side, the passive side, the anti-Zionist side, might look and appreciate these historic developments. Rav Kook wrote and continued to dilate on this. He continues, he says, there is nothing, however, in the foundations of our faith or its details that should sway us from the idea that the initial arousal and shaking off of the dust of exile can be done through natural human processes. Rav Kook says, However, despite their opposition, we are well within our religious rights and in the Torah's rights to say that no, it's to these people and it's to these natural means that religious Jews, Bedafka, specifically religious Jews, need to give their energy, need to give their ideological support, and need to join together with. And we have a holy obligation, of Cook says, to take part of it as much as possible. And you could see over here, I'd like to include an image of the kind of people Rav Cook was talking to. This is the Mizrahi group, uh, one of the Russian groups of Mizrahi. And um, they look like the kind of people that we might need, have a knee-jerk association with anti-Zionism based on how history is borne out. But this is, what, this is the people Rav Cook was talking to and people heard Rav Cook. Rav Cook had a great many admirers. Rav Cook had a great many, a great deal of influence throughout the world. You know, I'll just pause to mention for a second, uh, there was a, a delegation of rabbis that went in 1924 to the United States to raise funds for the yeshivot in, in Europe. The yeshivot in Europe in the interwar period were in dire straits. And uh, one of the leaders of the one of the leaders of the delegation was Rav Avraham Dovber Kahana Shapira, who was the author of the Dvar of Ram. He was the Rav of Kovno, uh, one of the most important rabbinic figures of his time. Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein, uh, a major Rashi Shiva of the time, and the third individual that they sent along to raise funds that would have sufficient sway upon the Jews of New York and Chicago and Boston and Washington, D.C. Those are the cities that they stopped in, was Rav Cook, none other than Rav Cook. Now, imagine my surprise when I was doing a little bit of research on what did Rav Cook do when he was in New York? So he stayed at the home of Harry Fischel, who was a great philanthropist. This is a total sidebar, but just something I found really, really cool. Rav Cook stayed for a week on the Upper West Side. And I said to myself, I need to find out where on the Upper West Side Rav Cook stayed. I mean, Rav Cook stayed on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I live on the Upper, I lived on the Upper West Side. Of I got to find it. After like researching some of the newspapers through Michael Film that's, on, that's online, it, it turns out Rav Cook stayed at the house of one of these local philanthropists on West 76th Street. And I even found the picture of Rav Cook ascending up the stairs to a brownstone. 
And guess who else lived on 76th Street? Me. So I spent, whenever I would walk home from school, so sometimes it would take a little bit of an excursion. I might walk past my building just to see, like maybe I could see like one of those brownstones looks a little bit closer. Maybe is there an identifying mark in the picture? I never quite found it. But that's just to illustrate that Rav Cook was included in this delegation is to illustrate how important and how influential Rav Cook was throughout the Jewish world at the time. There were people that took up Rav Cook's charge and said, and said that Rav Cook is correct and that anyone who understands the true underpinnings of the Zionist movement knows as well that they needn't fear the, three, the free thinkers, the reformers at all, as these people are only able to assert themselves as long as religious and people who are neman, who are faithful to the Torah and to tradition, so long as they are aloof and restrained, that's the only way that they will have influence. And this is Rav Cook's clarion call towards religious Zionism. What about opposition? So the opposition sometimes takes natural forms. We have over here, for example, Moses Mendelssohn, who died in 1794, but was one of the greatest Jewish philosophers of history and the, the forebearer of the, the Moschilic movement. Uh, he himself was uh, an observant Jew, and he saw Jewish nationalism as a relic, not only anachronistic, but also impractical. Uh, Mendelssohn writes, I'm not even going to try and pronounce the German, even though I think it's fun, Geschamelte uh, Schriften, and this is quoted in a book in English, I don't read German, the greatest obstacle, Mendelssohn says, and this led to, to the opposition to Zionism that came from even quarters of the reform, who said that it is cringe, that Jews would want to start their own state and would want to reactivate history. Mendelssohn writes, the greatest obstacle in the way of this proposal is the character of my people. It is not ready to attempt anything so great. The pressure under which we have lived for centuries has removed all vigor from our spirit. We can never be that tanned sabra. We can never drain those swamps. We can never defend that kibbutz. We can never raise that army. We can never smuggle in those arms and people. That will never happen. We have no more vigor in our spirit. The galut has degraded us. The exile has brought us to a place in which our strength is sapped. We're in survival mode. The natural impulse for freedom has ceased its activity within us. It has been changed into a monkish piety, manifested in prayer and suffering, not in activity. The hope for return to Palestine is reserved for synagogue and prayer, but it has no influence on our conduct as citizens. Later on in the reform movement, they would even remove references to the sacrifices and to any sort of active, tangible approach to the land, that it was more of a rarefied religious and spiritual concept. Rukuk, for his part, continues to write a letter to the Mizrahi organization St. Gallen. Uh, Rav Kook was stuck. I'm not going to read the whole letter. Rav Kook, uh, went to go raise funds for the land of Israel, and he got stuck in Europe in 1912 to 1916. He spent two years in London. He became the rabbi of the Machzike Hadat Synagogue in London. And he also spent time in the home of an admirer, uh, David Kimchi, who was a Swiss banker. And he stayed in St. Gallen there. He met one of his most important Talmidim, the great Nazir, Rabbi David Cohen. And Rav Kook continues to rail and say that even though it's true, and Rav Kook is really referring to is that in, in the early Zionist Congress, there was a rumor going around that Herzl had said that Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism, with religious Judaism. The, the line was, 
that Zionism has nothing to do with religion. Rav Kook levels a very harsh critique to the Mizrahi delegation to the Zionist Congress and says, so long as you can, so long as you hear that and you are not protesting and you are not saying that is absolutely untrue, that Zionism has everything to do with religion, that Zionism has no leg to stand on, if not for religion. Rav Kook says, I don't understand how you could be there. I don't understand how you can participate. Rav Kook, for his part, says that we need to constantly be looking to join together religion and Zionism, and that is the only way that it is going to be successful. Rav Kook felt so passionately about this that Rav Kook took the controversial move of doing this. Do you guys know what this picture is? This is a picture of the dedication of the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. Now, I don't know, the picture doesn't have a high resolution, but you could see um, certainly university kind of wear, uh, men and women together, and if you look and you see over here, that's Rav Kook. Rav Kook is sitting on the dais at the dedication of the Hebrew University. Rav Kook would later ascend to the dais and Rav Kook would offer, uh, Rav Kook would offer for his part an invocation and a desire to see the Hebrew University become a place where Torah and science, Torah Mada, where that would become connected and would be brought together, and that this was the vision of Kook had, as only through the quality of connection between the entire nation and the living perfect Torah lies the success of Zionism and its ascendancy in the future. I mean, these are somewhat prophetic words from Kook, and we'll talk about why I believe that to be so at the end of the class. Kook finishes off, he says, it seems to me, and this is the criticism he has on Mizrahi, who talked about last week, on religious Zionists. Kook says, it seems to me there's no rectification for the Mizrahi other than to announce clearly that with all of its love for Zionism in general, it opposes with all its might this abhorrent resolution and will not rest until it is expunged from the Zionist platform. That is that Zionism has nothing to do with religion. Now this is Rav Kook speaking. This is who I told you before is the father of religious Zionism. And if you read this, it would sound like Rav Kook is somebody that is somewhat opposed to Zionism. And indeed, that's true. Rav Kook said that instead of having the Mizrahi party, he would start the Yerushalmi party. That we cannot be Zionists, we must be Jerusalemites. And that party failed, but that is a way to encapsulate why Rav Kook's nuanced point of view was so meaningful and caught on so well with people. Now, I want to talk about the first version of anti-Zionism in its modern manifestation, and that comes from the great Rav Elchanan Wasserman. Uh, it's difficult for me to say that because Rav Wasserman, whose views I don't subscribe to, who's nonetheless a great Rosh Hashiva and Baranovich, an amazing Talmudic thinker, I love to learn his Sfarim and the Kovitz Shiurim, he also had very harsh and terrible things to say about Rav Kook and of religious Zionism. Rav Wasserman saw religious nationalism, Jews participating in nationalism as nothing short of a rebellion against God. And I'm going to read to you from the beginning of one of his tracts called Ikvita de Meshicha. It's been republished. This is part of a new publishing. Fortunately, Rav Wasserman was in the United States and, uh, and went back to Europe uh, where he was murdered by the Nazis. Um, he had an opportunity, I believe, to, to survive, but he went back to his yeshiva and he was eventually uh, killed. In, and, and his son, I believe, became a rabbi in Los Angeles, Sim, Rabbi Simcha Wasserman, maybe you've uh, heard of. Uh, he writes the following. And these words might be hard for you to hear. And these words are hard for me to hear because this is criticism. And this makes you 
try and consider a little bit your own approaches to things. And he focuses in and hones in on the concept of nationalism. What does it mean when Jews want to be a nation like the other nations, like Herzl said? I'll read in Hebrew and translate. The father of the national idea in Judaism, he's not referring to Herzl over here. I believe he's referring to Peretz Smolenskin, who had a, a journal, a weekly journal called Hashachar, and was one of the first theorists of the Chovev Eitzion movement and the, and, and the revival of Jewish nationalism. Shechai Lefnei Keshishim Shana lived at the end of the 19th century, and fought his entire life against the Torah. It seems that Smolenskin and Herzl later, that they believed, at least in Rav Hanan's eyes, that Judaism, that the Torah is antiquated and basically useless and has no, nothing to say to us nowadays and that we could replace that, supersessionism. And you could see why you touch almost like a, a religious third rail over here, that Torah and tradition is going to be obviated by something else. And that something else is nationalism. It wasn't Jews' idea at all. And he refers to the fact that when the young Turks came to power and there were all these nations at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that agitated for national determination. Serbia and Montenegro, he refers to over here, that liberated themselves from the Turks and became their own nations. And later on, the rise of nationalism that you see across Europe, in the Arab world, much later on. He says it's not even a Jewish idea to desire this liberation, this national determination. It doesn't even come from us. It has nothing to do with us. He says, Ikara shitazu. The main idea over here is liot Yehudi, to be a Jew, mashma liot bal hakara umit vitulo. In the eyes of Rabbi Wasserman, what Zionists are telling us, that to be a Jew just means seeing oneself as part of the nation of Jewish people and nothing more. No obligation, nothing to do with Torah or mitzvot. That we're a people, we've got a flag like everyone else, we've got soccer matches like everyone else, we have an army, we have national pride, and we could sing our national songs, and that makes us a nation in the house of nations. The people, the Zionists that came afterwards, completed that idea. And that includes people who've completely thrown off the yoke of, of observance or of any respect for Judaism, that it's so, so long as they wave the flag, they're okay. And this was Rav Hanan's approach to Jewish nationalism, that it was nothing short of a rebellion and a supersession of God and Torah. What about a softer form of anti-Zionism? And this is what some people term nowadays a kind of non-Zionism or soft religious anti-Zionism. I think it's crystallized in one very famous encounter. The encounter is over here, uh, put in the newspaper, it was so important. It was the meeting of Ben-Gurion and Chazonish. This is a picture of the Chazonish, of Avram Yishayu Karolet, Zecher Tzadik, Kaddish Levracha, uh, one of the greatest Talmudists of the last 500 years. I mean, he's that big of a figure, uh, a sainted man, a saintly man. Uh, the Chazanish wanted nothing more than for more Torah to be learned and for more Jews to be learning Torah. In a sense, in a narrow and head down kind of way, the Torah is the most important thing and, and all worldly considerations are secondary and subservient to that idea. The Chazanish at the time was 
considered the leader of what we now term Haredi Judaism, and the Chazan Ish, which was not so large at the time, and the Chazan Ish met with Ben-Gurion, or Ben-Gurion met with the Chazan Ish, and Ben-Gurion describes in his diaries, this is a link I'm going to send out tonight after tonight, I'm going to send out, uh, if, you, if you want, please send me an, an email, um, my email address my email address, uh, I'll, I'll give at the end, and I'm happy to share this direct with you uh, before we put it up on a clearinghouse in Mirza Shem the school website. But Ben-Gurion writes in his diaries, he said, this morning I went to B'nai Brak for a meeting with the Chazonish. The press thought it to be a sensational visit. Many, many people were outside. Nobody was allowed inside except for Yitzchak Navon. I encountered crowds along the way and around his house. A group of his followers waited outside and in the nearby rooms. Yitzchak Navon was the only one who came in with me. I asked him the question to which I have yet to find a sufficient answer for my observant friends. We, meaning Chazanish and myself, are divided in different ways. In the matter at hand, we are divided by our views of religious tradition. There are Jews like you and like me. How do we live together? How do we become a unit? Now, maybe you've heard the story, but it's worth sharing with you. The story is, is that the conversation between the Chazanish and Ben-Gurion went something like this. The Chazanish replied by quoting a halacha from the Talmud, that when there are two camels that are going down a narrow alleyway, which camel and driver is meant to give way for the other camel? So the answer in the Gemara and in the halacha is that the camel that is laden with more goods, the camel that is carrying the bigger load, that camel has the right of way. And I think they use a donkey, whatever it is, whatever pack animal it is. And the camel that has nothing on it must yield. And the upshot of this was very clear to Ben-Gurion that the Chazanish was saying that his camel, which is laden with the weight of Jewish history, with 2,000 years of survival through Torah, through mitzvot, in the ghetto, through the worst kinds of degradations and persecutions and sufferings, that that camel has the right of way, and thus the camel without anything on it, this new ideology of Zionism must defer and must make way for it and its demands. You need to shut down buses on Shabbos. Your national carrier should not fly on Shabbos. You need to make sure that there are no restaurants that are serving food that could be non-kosher and that everything that happens in the state must be subservient to Torah and that Chazanish is asking for is that learners of Torah should be exempt from service in the army and in the military. Now, at the time, that was a very short order because the amount of people that affected was not, not that many, not the 60,000, 70,000 that it might mean nowadays. Chazanish and Ben-Gurion talked in this manner and Ben-Gurion understood well and Ben-Gurion responded to his own words. He says, but what about security? Who's going to bring in all the immigrants and settle them? Who's going to provide the food? Who's going to provide the roads and their upkeep? And when Ben-Gurion says that they were talking like this, that they were talking not like as two camels going down the same road, but that they were going down different roads, that they were talking past each other. The Chazanish's followers nowadays, some have hardened uh, into a much more serious kind of anti-Zionism, and some, especially in America, and, and people that follow, I'll show you, for example, the Agudat Yisrael movement, who has hardened in a certain extent, these are people that will receive funds from the state that might nominally uh, speak in different ways and accept in different ways than the anti-Zionism that we have seen and will see. Uh, for example, 
Uh, even their past had some unabash Zionism. This is an announcement, the picture over here, of a public holiday celebration for the miracle of independence by Paul A. Agudat Yisrael. Agudat Yisrael, the people that put on the, uh, in America, the Dafyomi. Now, many things have changed, but to see a document like this is quite startling. I didn't stumble upon this on my own. This comes from a great article by Rabbi Dr. J.J. Schachter called Facing the Truths of History and Ourselves that was published in the Torah Mada Journal, I believe, in 1996. Very important seminal monograph, really. It's about 70 pages. He talks about the fact that if you would ask Agudat Yisrael if they would celebrate Yom Atzmut nowadays, of course not. It's a regular day, but... Way back in 1949, they certainly did. And this leads to a kind of soft Zionism. These are Haredim that will cheer on a yeshivish world that cheers on the state of Israel. And we find these attitudes constantly shifting. Uh, they enjoy the hotels. They enjoy the benefits, the trappings of the modern state. And certainly don't use rhetoric like some of the rhetoric that we might see, which is rather incendiary. That's a soft anti-Zionism. What about an extreme anti-Zionism? And we talked about on the chart that we mentioned very early on. And maybe let's see if I could show you from the very beginning, religious responses, Zionism. So if I were to track and I would say a state ruled by Jews or the regime of Israel, regime of Israel, the anti-Jewish state, now we're starting to get more towards this end of the gradient. And I want to show you what I mean. And uh, I, want to, I want to issue a little bit of, uh, I know it sounds... It's not childish, a bit of a trigger warning because the language you're about to see, I don't want to make caricatures of, uh, of our co-religionists, of great tzaddikim like the Satmarov, um, but, but it's important to, to see this and to understand. Um, the reason that the, these are numbered differently, these came from a shir I gave many, many years ago, and I borrowed the material from there, but I certainly gathered this. Reveal title and title bound, the Satmar Rebbe, um, my family, full disclosure, uh, before the war, uh, were Hasidim of Satmar. And uh, pre- before of Yol, his brother, who was the Sigeter of the Atzei Chaim, I can tell you more about our family story. Uh, my Saba remembers spending Yom and Tovim with the Satmarov and uh, Yol Teitelbaum. And my father makes a Kiddush cup, makes Kiddush every week on a cup from his older brother, uh, from the Atzei Chaim, that was gifted to my great-grandfather, uh, may Hashem avenge his blood. The Satmar Rebbe writes, in Vayol Moshe, which is his central tract of uh, his thought and his ideology of religious opposition to Zionism, it's a translation. He says, because of our sinfulness, we have suffered greatly. Suffering is bitter as wormwood, worse than any Israel has known since it became a people. In former times, whenever troubles befell Jacob, the matter was pondered and reasons were sought. When bad stuff happened, we said, which activities, which things are we doing? What kind of backsliding behavior has led to this? Which sin has brought these bets so that we make amends and return to the Lord? May he be blessed. But our generation, one need not look far for the sin responsible for our calamity. The heretics have made all kinds of effort to violate these oaths. Those are the three oaths that we mentioned at the outset. To go up by force and to see sovereignty and freedom for themselves before the appointed time. Messiah hasn't come. They have lured the majority of the Jewish people into awful heresy, the like of which has not been seen since the world was created. And included in those heretics would be people like myself, religious Zionists, for believing that we could participate, for believing that I could serve in the army of such a state, that I could be a part of that process, that we could make Aliyah and send our families there and enjoy and support and pray and daven 
for the state of Israel. And it is no wonder that the Lord has lashed out in anger. And there were also righteous people who perished because of the iniquity of the sinners and corruptors, so great was the divine wrath. Now this is foundational religious anti-Zionist text of the extreme, and we find far greater extremists. People, individuals like Rabbi Yerach Mildom, who writes in HaChoma, which is a Neturei Karta publication. And this is cited by Aviezer Ravitsky in this book I mentioned to you before, phenomenal academic work where a lot of my sources have been taken from, called Messianism, Zionism, and Jewish Religious Radicalism. Professor Aviezer Ravitsky, I believe, at the University of Chicago. It's published by the University of Chicago. It's Senior Fellow of the Israel Democracy Institute, an amazing book of scholarship. He writes, the Zionists profane the Holy Sabbath. Listen to this. It's a parallel universe to what we see from Rav Kook and to Rav Rhinus and Rav Al-Kalai. He says, the Zionists profane the Holy Shabbos, but that is profanation of the Sabbath, not Zionism. And there will be profaners of the Sabbath without them. The Zionists eat forbidden food, but that is not Zionism. There are many people in this world who eat forbidden food aside from the Zionists. The Zionists transgress and violate the teachings of the Torah, but that is not Zionism. There were sinners in this world before Zionism came along. I mean, he's a great polemicist, if nothing else. Zionism is one thing and one thing only. The state, the state of Israel, the Medina, the state of Israel is the great defilement and profound heresy that the Zionists have introduced. It is the very essence of Zionism that it utterly denies the essentials of our faith and is an absolute denial that reaches down to the very depths, to the very foundation, to the very roots. This is the ideology of Neturei Karta. What I can tell you folks is that it ain't about those three oaths. What it is about is that Zionism represents a change in the order of Jewish history for 2,000 years, a sense that we are no longer passive, that we have an active role to play. And even if it's messy, and even if it's something that comes with great suffering and pain for those with religious sensitivity and care for Torah and tradition, it is something that we must partner with. It is something that we must be a part of and sanctify and elevate to be part of God's processes unfolding in the world. And this is an outline of what they might mean in article. Apparently this Rav Yerachmiel Dome himself was excommunicated because he called people like Rav Yol Teitelbaum and the Eid Haredit not anti-Zionist enough and he was excommunicated. And there's a nice article in the Washington Post from 1988 where you could see them explaining their points of view for the world to see as well. So where do we end off with? And I know I'm slightly over time. And uh, of course, if anybody has to go, uh, by all means. But I want to finish off by going back to Rav Kook. Here you have a picture of Rav Kook and some rabbinic luminaries during their famous trip the Masa Moshavot, when they went around doing the opposite of what we just read and they gave strength and they gave support and encouragement to the farmers of the Moshavot and the Kibbutzim in nascent state of Israel. And this is Rav Kook during his trip uh, to America. I forgot the name of the mayor at the time. It's the mayor before Lindsay. Uh, John, I forgot his name. Uh, but this is Rav Kook looking at him. I mean, Rav Kook is Rav Kook. Rav Kook writes like this. This is all the way on the other end of the spectrum. And this will be the second to last slide and we'll conclude after this. What does it mean to have an ideal? What does it mean to say, every Shabbos? What does it mean to say that the state of Israel is the beginning of the flowering of our redemption? Or as some say, that it's hoped for. So Rav Kook writes in his magnum opus, 
which is compiled by his student, by his son, called Orot. Rav Kook writes, Ein ha-midina ha-osher ha-olyon shaladam. I'm going to read you Rav Kook's beautiful, beautiful Hebrew. It's notoriously difficult, but it rewards study. The state is not the great joy and not the goal of an individual. You could say this about a regular country. A normal country is no different than just a great collection of a polity, a great collection of people that are responsible for one another. That unites that unites different ideologies. And this is the purpose of humanity. The state is what subsumes and encompasses all that. But we don't often realize our ideals. State is a state. It's not often an ideal state. However, what about a state that in its very foundation, from its very inception, is ideal? that ingrained in its very founding, ingrained in its ideals, ingrained in its purpose, is the greatest ideal of all, is godliness. That is the greatest joy, the greatest purpose of a human being to connect to God, to connect to Torah, to connect to something transcendent that rises above this world. This state, founded on these ideals, is the very highest on the ladder of values. And the double, triple underline. And the state that I'm talking about, the country I'm talking about is our country. Medinat Israel, state of Israel. Yesod kisei Hashem ba'olam. The pedestal of God's foundation, of God's presence in this world. The state of Israel is the foundation and the kisei, the throne of God is what sits on that. It's a It's a possibility for an indwelling of godliness in a world that does not have a Beit HaMikdash, that does not have a Mishkan, and that still has plenty of suffering, plenty of people, and unrealized and unidealized states, but it all starts with this country, with this state of Israel. The goal is that God should be one and God's name should be one. Unification. The greatest joy and the greatest value that we could find. And of course, says Emes, it's true that there's a long way to go before we get there. But if we take our religious Zionism seriously, if we understand that which it means to support the modern state of Israel, and we could give a whole series of shirim on the different approaches. Rav Kook is not the only approach to religious science. There's practical approaches that we could talk about that I want to talk about. I'm already way over time. But if we want to have this become reality, if we want to realize this osher, this joy, this satisfaction, this contentment, we must constantly hone, sharpen, deepen our ideals and through doing so, through that increase in understanding, we'll be able to truly realize what it means to bridge the gap between religion and Zionism. And it hopefully ends with the eventual advent of the Messiah, the end to our suffering, the end to the suffering of the world, the end to all travail and war, and uh, the coming of the Messiah may it happen very, very soon. I want to thank